Well, good morning. And for those of you, our neighbors to the north, just want to say happy birthday a day late. Canada celebrated 150 years. Of course, down here with the exchange, it's only 75, but we're very excited for them. And I want to say happy birthday, happy Canada Day, a day late. And we've got Independence Day coming up this week. Uh, whether you're here in Bellingham, those of you in Skagit, down at Trinity Church of God in Boca Raton, or watching online, we're so glad that you're with us. This is the fifth week of our 14-week series looking in the book of Romans, the letter that Paul wrote to a church in Rome. I just want to mention that in a minute or so, I'm going to give you a quiz. It's the same quiz I've given you two or three times already in this series. The answer to the quiz are four words. This will give you some time to start remembering, filing through your old notes, pulling up an old sermon on your phone to watch it to try to get that quiz. I'm hoping you'll do well with this quiz. While you're trying to remember the answer to that quiz, I want to tell you about an event Pastor Kip and I had a couple weeks ago. We were in Wichita, Kansas, which for Kip was a great thing because he's from Kansas. For me, it's like, why would anyone live here? But we were there for a conference, and one of the speakers at this conference was a man named Paul Shepard. And as he was preaching, he was talking about how in our lives and in our churches and in our world, our sin, our rebellion, our wandering, our falling short has really jacked up our lives. And, and he said, in fact, in our church, there's a word that we use, it's called jacked upedness. It describes our state apart from Christ. And as he was talking about this jacked upedness that we all experience, I thought that's kind of the exact opposite of righteousness that we've been talking about, that the book of Romans talks about. Righteousness, as you recall, is this right standing before God. It's the status of being good enough for God. And jacked upedness is the exact opposite of that. And as we've discovered, the bad news of our lives in our world is that our jacked upness is way worse than we thought it was. That the bad news is worse than we imagined. That we are helpless and hopeless in our own condition. And it's the fact that the bad news is so bad that makes the good news so much more glorious, so much more beautiful, so much more incredibly wonderful, so much better. And it's this, that even in our jacked upness, that there's a righteousness, a right standing before God, a, a good enough for God. Here's the quiz. There's a righteousness that is, four words, there's a righteousness that is from God, and it is by faith. It's God's doing, not ours, and it's by faith, not for our works or anything that we've ever tried to give or sacrifice or, or give up. And all of this comes out of that, really, the, the pivotal key verse of the entire book of Romans, the, the verse that that changed a young man named Martin Luther that totally uh, redirected Christianity that has, has rocked the world. It's found in Romans chapter 117. We looked at this the very first week when it says this, that in the gospel, a right standing, a good enough for God from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And the rest of the book, he spends explaining, defining, illustrating, expanding on this concept, that there is a righteousness from God and is by faith. Last week when Pastor Scott took us through Romans chapter 5, and didn't Pastor Scott do a great job last week? Yeah, that was fantastic. I just love that we have such great communicators on our staff. So he talked about Romans chapter 5 and this concept of through, through Christ, and 17 times the word through happens in Romans chapter 5. 
as, as he dealt with the same thing I deal with every week, that there's way too much content to try and cover in one week, there were some things he had to skip over. And at the end of Romans chapter five, there was a, a couple of verses that he was able to just barely touch down on. And I wanna take us back there to really set us up for this week as we go into Romans chapter six. At the end of Romans chapter five, verse 20, it says this. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. Now that's a little confusing. We will talk about that next week when we get into Romans chapter seven, a lot about the law and all that, so don't worry too much about that right now. But this phrase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. This is an amazing phrase. Some, Some translations would say, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Like, like the more I sinned, where my sin was abounding, grace superabounded. And the amazing part of this phrase is that no matter how deep, no matter how dark, no matter how defiled or depraved or, or how disgusting or despicable or how jacked up my sin is, God's grace overrides it. This is what, for some of us, we've sung about our whole life. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than what? Okay, you didn't sing it. All my sin. Recently here, we've been singing about this, the wonderful name of Jesus. My sin was great, his love was greater. It's an amazing picture that no matter how deep and how dark and how desperate our sin, God's grace overpowers it. And he goes on and he finishes and says, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through, there's that word again, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What a picture that our right standing with God has nothing to do with what we have done. It's all about what Jesus has done. It's not about how good we are, have been, or can be. It's how good Jesus is. It's not about what we've sacrificed, but what Jesus sacrificed. And it's not about trying to earn it or deserve it. It's given. It's this gift. It's grace. And when you really understand that, When you grasp the depth and the the beauty of grace, it will almost always lead to this question. If it doesn't lead to this question, you haven't fully understood grace, you haven't fully taught grace, you haven't fully preached grace. It leads to this question. If all of that is true, then what good is being good? I mean, why should we? What's the incentive? Where's the motive for even having a, a, a life that is honoring to God, of giving up, to say no to things, to die under ourselves? What, what, what's that about? If our right standing with God has nothing to do with my life and my behavior and my actions, then why would I change anything? And not only that, if, even if I wanted it to be about my life, that it's impossible because as Isaiah said, my acts of righteousness are like filthy rags, so even if I tried to be really good, it wouldn't work. So why should I even be good? Why should I even try to live a life that is honoring to God, that is righteous, that is in accordance with his will, especially if it means giving some stuff up? I mean, where's the motive in that? Because some of us were raised with this fear mentality. I'll tell you the motive. You know, if you do live that way, God's going to be mad and he'll punish you and probably send you to hell. And for some of us, that fear kept us from doing a lot of fun stuff when we were in high school. (laughs) And we're like, why did I do that? Why couldn't I have heard about this righteousness that's from God and by faith? I could have done all this kind of stuff. Now, that question, that question about that, if that's the case, 
If justice was uncompromised and God's wrath was satisfied by what happened with Jesus on the cross, remember the propitiation we talked about, if that's the case, then why should I ever be good? And you can even imagine that the the people that Paul is addressing who live in Rome, and at this point Rome is like the capital city of self-indulgent hedonistic debauchery. Why shouldn't we? When in Rome, do as the Romans do. Why wouldn't we do what the rest of the culture does? And Paul anticipates this question, and he addresses it in Romans chapter 6, and we're going to look at this. So as is always the case, there's so much more in Romans chapter 6 than we can cover today. I'm going to have to skim over some stuff, summarize some stuff, completely skip some stuff. So I want to encourage you to read it on your own this week. But if you have your Bible, your tablet, your phone, whatever, turn to Romans chapter 6. And keep in mind, we're coming off of this Romans 5 where, where he says, where, grace did a, where, where sin abounded, grace did super abound. And then he starts off this way in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? He anticipates their question. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And you can understand the logic because in some of your minds, you're already going down this road. Well, okay, if that means that when I sin... It gives opportunity for God to give grace, and when God gives grace, he gets the glory. That's a beautiful thing. It's beautiful for me, it's beautiful for God. So maybe I shouldn't stop sinning. In fact, maybe I should increase my sin quotient. I should should amp up my sin output because the more I sin, the more grace God shows, the more glory he gets. It's all for his glory. Whatever your hand does, do it with all your might. I'm giving you the glory, God. Let's go. And it's a synathon. And you're thinking this way. For some of you, you have never said amen in your life in church, but right now you're considering it. (laughs) You're thinking, preach it, brother. I like this man. I got a word from the Lord. Let's close in prayer and go to Vegas, baby. Okay, just hold on there, Magic Mike. Just slow down a little bit, okay? That's the logic. And he's addressing this. Is that, is that how it should be? So we just like, let's just keep on sinning because it gives God an opportunity. And he says, by no means, by no means. You, you don't fully understand this. We died to sin, and this is a key little phrase. We're going to come back to it in just a minute. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Whatever this means, we've died to sin. He's saying, How can we continue to swim in the cesspool of sin? How can we continue to breathe in the toxic air of sin? How can we continue to dwell in, live in, be the citizens of Sinville? How could we do that? And what you find here is that Paul takes a turn in his uh, his, um, his whole uh, maybe approach or topic that he's been covering. Let me back up and give you a 20,000 foot view. In Romans chapter one through five, Paul is talking about what God has accomplished in the gospel. In Romans 6, 7, and 8, and we're going to spend the next uh, four weeks on Romans 6, 7, and 8. They all kind of go together as as a capsule. In Romans 6, 7, and 8, Paul begins to talk about what God will accomplish and is accomplishing in the gospel. One through five, it's what he has accomplished. Past tense, perfect, done, complete. Chapter six through eight, it's what God is accomplishing, present tense, progressive, ongoing. 
And so you begin to see, if all we talk about is this righteousness that is from God and by faith and it's the grace through Jesus and we stop there, we've only got part of the story. And so he begins to make a shift. Paul shifts here and we've been talking about this justification, this righteousness from God, but he's saying, listen, justification doesn't stand on its own. Justification leads to another big word, to sanctification. Well, let me explain that. This whole thing of justification that we've looked at for the last four weeks, this righteousness that is imputed, that is credited to us, that is received, received. But this transformation, we are receiving. One of them was past tense, it was done, it was complete, it was perfect, it was finished. One of them is present tense, it is ongoing, it is progressive, it is continuing. The one, this justification, this righteousness, is our position in Christ, who we are in Christ. That when we become followers after Jesus, his righteousness is put on us, and our position, our standing, our status with God is as high as it will ever be because he sees us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's as high as it will ever be. That's our position in Christ. But our practice... Our behavior, our character, our attitudes, our actions, our words, our relationships, our priorities, uh, you know, our, our deeds, they are continuing to be transformed. There's this gap between our position in Christ and our practice in our life. And so now he's going to talk about this piece because this is already taken care of. Maybe this is a, a weak illustration. No, it's not. I think it's a great illustration. That's why I'm telling you. On the day I got married, my status as a married man is that I am married legally. I am married. I will never be more married than I am at that moment. But the rest of my life, I'm building a marriage. Does that make sense? So when he says, you know what? Yes, you're righteous. Your status, you're standing. It's there. But there's this ongoing transformation that God is working in your life. This is best summarized in a verse out of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, where it says, by one sacrifice, what Jesus did on the cross, he has made perfect forever, made, past tense, perfect, done, complete, made perfect forever, those who are being made holy. You see the contrast there. One is done, it's finished, one is ongoing, it's incomplete. That's why he would say, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3, we all with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. Or, Paul would say, it's not that I've already been made perfect, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on. It's this ongoing process that we are perfect in our position. We are the righteousness of Christ. We are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And there's usually, <laughs> there's always a big gap there. And now he's gonna talk about how do we start closing that gap? It'll never be completely closed until we're to the day of Christ Jesus, but we're gonna continue to close it. Here's a little side note, one of, not the only, one of the gauges that will determine the spiritual maturity you're experiencing, one of the gauges that you can look at and say, am I growing in my faith? 
Am I becoming who God has created me to be? Is your awareness, your sensitivity, and your sorrow over your own sin? Not other people, your own sin. If you have a cavalier attitude such as, well, yeah, I sin, but Jesus forgives me, you know what that means? This gap is pretty wide and you don't fully understand it. If you're gripped by your own sin, if you're grieved by your own sin, not because you're afraid, not out of fear, well, I did this, now God's gonna be mad, now he's gonna punish me and he might send me to hell, which some of us were raised with, but if you're gripped by it because you're like, the one that I love the most shed his blood for me. Why do I do this? What's going on here? We'll look at this next week. To, to know that I am out of step with what God has for me. When you begin to understand and have sorrow and grief over your own sin, that's an indicator you're making progress in your spiritual journey. And so he comes along and he says, hey, there's this position that we have in Christ. It's set, but there's this ongoing transformation. It reminds me, several years ago, um, there was a family in our congregation, had three children, um, all like middle school and younger. Their oldest son had become a follower of Jesus, wanted to be baptized. So we're getting ready to have him uh, get baptized, one of our baptismal things. And uh, the parents were explaining to the younger siblings, hey, your brother's gonna get baptized and this is what it means. <laughs> and they said his little brother said, does that mean after he's baptized he won't be mean to me anymore? <laughs> Which wouldn't that be great if we could just baptize all the mean people in the world? What a better place it would be. At that moment, that young man, he is in the righteousness of Christ. He's still mean to his little brother. There's some transformation that needs to take place. Some of you are still mean to your little brothers and there's some transformation that needs to take place. Just because he's baptized. All right, so that's our position in this practice. So Paul, he takes this, this picture and this understanding of baptism. And baptism is this spiritual symbol that we participate in and it is symbolic of a literal death, burial, and, trans and resurrection that Jesus experienced. And it's also symbolic of a spiritual reality that happens with us. So he refers to it, verse three. Or don't you know, you know, shall we keep on sinning? By no means, we, we've died to sin. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. He says this happened to Jesus literally. He was crucified, he died, he was buried, and he was raised from the dead. Now, we are with Christ, we identify with Christ, our life is found in Christ, and with that, we die, we are buried, and we are raised to new life in Christ. That's the symbolism. That's why we baptize by full immersion here. It's, we believe it's the practice of the early church. We believe it best symbolizes what baptism is all about. And he spent some time, this is one of those areas where I'm just gonna have to skip over a bunch. Read it on your own. Drop down to verse 10, and it starts talking about Jesus again. Verse 10, the death he died... He died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Now again, look at the tenses. The death, past tense, once for all, complete, it's done. The life, present tense, he lives, ongoing, it's progressive to God. And this is what Jesus did. And what I love about Paul is that he doesn't leave it just in the, the theological or the theoretical. He always takes these spiritual concepts and he says, okay, so how does that apply to us? And what he does in the next verse, and it's hard to say that, that verse 11 is the key verse of chapter six because there's so much good stuff in chapter six. 
But verse 11 is so important in chapter six because he's just pointing to Jesus and then in verse 11 says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you were here two weeks ago, there was a word that came up again and again in chapter four, credited. Could also be translated reckon, count, declare. It was that whole thing with the imputed righteousness that, that, that there was a credited to our bankrupt spiritual account the righteousness of Jesus. There was declared, not of anything we did or earned, it was declared, here is this deposit of righteousness. That's the word. It's the word again here. He says, so here's what I want you to do. In the same way as what Jesus did, literally, I want you to declare, I want you to reckon, I want you to count yourself dead to sin. So let's talk about that. What does that mean? I mean, maybe we've heard that, but it's like, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. But we never really stop to think what that means. Little, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to, to uh, throw trick questions, just a little response. Does that mean, being dead to sin, does that mean that when you become a Christian, you will never sin again? See, you did much better than that Saturday night group. They weren't really sure. <laughs> does that mean that when you become a Christian, no longer is sin ever a temptation or a draw for you? No. no. Does that mean that when you become a Christian, because all your sins have been forgiven, now your sin really doesn't matter because you've already got a prepaid punch card? No, no, no. I want to make sure we're really clear on that. No. Does it mean that when you're dead to sin, does it mean that when you become a Christian, you begin to sin less? No. You, hopefully you will sin less, but that's not what dead to sin, he's talking past tense, it's done. What does this dead to sin mean for us? And dead to sin, what he's talking about is the ruling reign. That sin, when we understand that when we become followers of Jesus, we are dead to sin, what that means is no longer does sin have ruling power in our lives. No longer is sin the dictator and the controller of my life. No longer do I have to obey the, the urges, the impulses, the temptations, the commands of sin in my life. I'm dead to sin, I can now resist it, I can fight against it, I'm free from that control. And he says, this is what you need to do. He says, you need to declare yourself, you need to reckon, you need to proclaim, I am dead to sin. And then I get this picture of the bratty little kid that says, you're not the boss over me. You can't tell me what to do. I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to obey you. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's what I want. When it comes to sin, be the bratty little kid. Look at square in the eyes and say, you are not the boss over me. I am dead to you, I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to follow whatever you want me to do. You declare that. This is who you are in Christ. You're alive to God in Jesus Christ. And you're dead to that sin. And once again, he takes it beyond just the theoretical. He takes it just beyond the theological, because that all seems to make sense. He says, let's get extremely practical, and he builds his case, and he gets to the point in verse 12 where he says, therefore, with all that in mind, therefore, he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. All right, looking at this crowd, I know that some of you are old enough to remember Flip Wilson in his little comedy thing saying, the devil made me do it. Some of you remember that? Okay. He's saying, no. The devil 
can't make you do jack squat. He's not the boss over you. He doesn't have the reigning, ruling power over you anymore. So just declare that and don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Don't obey everything it says, every impulse, every desire, every want, every temptation. You don't have to do that anymore. It says, and furthermore, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. He says, let's get really practical, like the parts of our body. So let's talk through this a little bit. You leave here, you drive out, you get on the road, and someone cuts you off, and you take your hand, <laughs> and you flip them off, or maybe you don't flip them off, you give them the five finger flip off, which you feel better about, but it says the same thing. Now, let me ask you, is the part of your body being used as an instrument of righteousness or an instrument of wickedness? Okay, some of you are not sure. Let, <laughs> ask your kids, they'll tell you. You're with some friends and they start gossiping about somebody and your ears are hearing that and you know this isn't right, it's not nice, it might not even be true, but you kind of want to hear and you kind of want to listen. Are your ears instruments of wickedness or righteousness? You have your mouth and profanity just flows out. You destroy someone with your words. You slander someone. You just tear them apart. You're negative. You're critical. Is the parts of your body, your mouth, being used for righteousness or for wickedness? Your eyes what you look at, what you watch, your mind, what you think about, your sexuality, and in Rome and in America, your sexuality, the parts of your body, are they being used as instruments of wickedness? He says, listen, sin is not your boss anymore. You're dead to that. And he says, and it's not just what not to do. He says, let me tell you what to do. And he just turns it around. He says, but rather, and it's just the opposite, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Don't forget who you are. You're dead to sin, you're alive to God. You are buried with Christ, you are raised to new life. You are spiritually dead, you are a corpse, but you've been breath, breathed with the breath of, of life and forgiveness in God, you are, you are the righteousness of Christ. Live that way. And then he just, I mean, like the same words. And offer the parts, I mean, look at this, it's the same. Offer, uh, offer the parts of your body, offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. He says, let's just be really, really practical about how we live our lives. With your eyes, let them see the beauty of God's world. Let them see the pain of humanity. Let them see the repulsiveness of sin and let it affect you. With your ears, listen to someone. Hear what they're going through. Hear what they're saying beyond the words. With your mouth, to build up, to encourage, to edify, to worship. With your hands, to make a difference in this world, to help others, to come alongside with your mind to think about what is noble and true and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent, 
and praiseworthy. Think about these things. And with your sexuality, with the parts of your body, to honor God with the parts of your body. He said, this is how this lives out in practical ways every single day for us. This is how we are closing that gap. This is how we are being transformed. And then he continues on. For sin shall not be your master, and he'll come back to this whole concept in a second, because you are not under law, but under grace. And then almost verbatim, he comes back to where he started this chapter. What then? It's almost like we need a reminder. Let's go back to where we started here. Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. And I wonder, I wonder if as he's writing this, he has in mind the story that Jesus told of the prodigal son. The prodigal son who in his rebellion and in his sin and his selfishness leaves the father, shames the father, destroys everything the father has given to him, lives in this wanton, riotous living, finds himself in the slop of the hogs and comes back expecting punishment, expecting the worst, and he receives sandals and a robe and a party. Like grace, like he could never understand. And to think maybe a couple years down the road, if that son were to think back to that day when he came home and his father ran to him and they killed the fatted calf, and I wonder if he's thinking, so what if three years later the son said, you know, maybe, maybe if I went back to the far country, maybe if I got back to the point where I was just bankrupt and back in the slop of the hogs, maybe I'd get another party. He's like, are you kidding me? Why would you even think like that? You think that's the route to go? You really don't understand this then. And then he changes kind of his metaphor, and he begins to talk about slavery. Slavery. He says this. He says, do you not know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one to whom you obey? So he's saying, when you say, hey, I will obey you, I'll do whatever you tell me, I become your slave. And he says, you got a couple choices here. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. You've got to decide. Are you going to be a slave to sin? Every time there's a temptation, every time there's a desire, every time there's a lust, every time there's anything, you're going to say, okay, whatever you say, sin, I'll do that. He says, if so, that choice of yours makes you a slave to sin or... You can be a slave, he says, to obedience, which leads to righteousness. And we'll get into that because some of you are like, well, wait, wait a second, I'm still in slavery here. He says, take, take a look. One of them's going to lead to death. One of them's going to lead to righteousness. Not the right standing with God that's already been done. But it's this transformation. It's where, like in Philippians 1.27 where he says, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. What Jesus did to give you this position, live in such a way that is worthy of that. And what he gets at is this, as he's painting this picture of slavery. He says that there's a spiritual emancipation. There's a freedom that has been given to you. Why would you continue to go back into slavery when you've been set free? Now, I've shared this uh, a couple times that in the last few years, I've had the privilege to travel to South Africa. And just over a year ago when we were there, 
We went out to Robben Island, where Nelson Mandela was, was held for, for many, many years, and, and many other political prisoners uh, during the, the apartheid season were held. And uh, Rich Bosman and I went out we, with a, a friend from South Africa, and we took the boat out to the island, and got off the boat, and we got onto a bus, and the guide on the bus was like a college student, and he kind of they toured us around the island, took us to the rock quarry that you know destroyed their eyesight and the, all that, and the limestone and the blinding light and all that. He took us to the canine area where, where actually the guard dogs had bigger and better cells than the inmates did, and all around. And this young college guy was very informative, very knowledgeable about the island. And as we came back around to the prison, we were getting off the bus, and he said, I will no longer be your guide. You will have a new guide inside the prison. And so our group went in, and pretty soon, an older black gentleman came out, and he said, I'll be your guide. And he began to take us around the prison. and began to tell us incredible stories, uh, very interesting stories. And we got into one cell block, and we stopped outside of this cell block, and, and he talked about it and this and that, and given us all the information, and then he stopped. And he said, this cell was my cell for six years. And there was something about this man, not just some college student who had read a book, but a man who had lived in that cell for six years. So he explained all that, and then at the end, he said, are there any questions? And there was a younger black gentleman who had some questions, and all of his questions had a little bit of an edge on him. His questions were like, so do you think it's okay to break the law against the government? So if you had it to do over again, would you break the law? If there was something today, would you break the law? Would you go back to prison for that? Just these questions with a little bit of an edge on it. And after all that was done, and the, and the older gentleman was very, very gracious. And as we walked out of the, out of the prison, Wayne Erasmus, who was with us, who lives in South Africa, who himself had gone to jail multiple times during apartheid because of his protest. I said, Wayne, what was the deal with that? And he said, that young man is what we refer to as a born free. It's the black individuals who've been born after 1994 and all they've ever known is freedom. They don't understand the horrors that we live through under apartheid. And he said, my children are all born free and for that I'm grateful, but I've brought them to Robben Island three times because I don't want them to ever take for granted the freedom that they have. I don't want them to forget how it once was. And as he was telling me that, I was thinking about just the spiritual implications of that. When someone gets baptized, we rejoice with them. But it ought to take us back to remind us we've died, we've been raised to new life in Christ. Why did Jesus give us communion? so that we wouldn't forget and we wouldn't take for granted the fact that our freedom and our position cost him his, his, his body and his blood. Why do we sing these songs, my chains are gone, I've been set free, to remind us of what we once were? See, we were born into slavery to sin, but we were reborn in Jesus Christ and there's an emancipation from that slavery. Sin is not our boss anymore. Some churches, someone would say yes or amen or something, all right. It says, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves, you used to be slaves to sin, 
you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. This form of teaching that says, there is a righteousness that is from God, it is by faith, through grace in Jesus Christ. You've grabbed onto that. You're no longer a slave to sin. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness, to which we, re- we re- recoil on that one. Wait a second. I don't even want to be a slave. And all the way through this chapter six, you see it at least three different times, he says there's really only two, two options here. Who is it that you are going to obey? Are you gonna obey and be a slave to sin? Or are you gonna be o- obedient and obey and become a slave to God and to righteousness and to obedience? Timothy Keller said this, I thought it was great. It, 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 at first it's got some double negative, so it's a little bit hard to understand. He said when it comes to this slave to sin, slave to righteousness or obedience, slave to sin, servant to God, says, you can't be neither, and you can't be both. You can't, be, you can't say, well, I don't want to be a slave to sin or to God. He says, that's not an option. You're going to obey. You're going to submit to one or the other. Okay, well, I want to do a little both, and that's not an option. In the early 80s, Bob Dylan came out with an album called Slow Train. It was like a gospel album for Bob Dylan. And on that album, there was a song that he sang if you can call what Bob Dylan does, singing. (laughs) There was a song that he performed. And it was called Serve Somebody. And it would talk about all these different kinds of people all the way through. Talk about all these different kinds. But the refrain was always this. And I mean the devil. And I mean the little bunch of hats to serve somebody. Translated. It might be the devil, or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And Paul, yeah. (laughs) Paul says, listen, you've got to decide. Are you going to be a slave to sin, or are you going to be a slave to righteousness? And, And this is where, man, read from verse 19 through 21. He starts talking about how this goes. Like, if you're a slave to sin and you give in to sin and you continue to sin, it will lead to increased wickedness, which will lead to a lot of sorrow and regret and shame. And I don't know, anyone here have any remorse from something you did in the past when you were obedient to sin besides me? Anyone at all? Okay. He says that's what happens and it eventually leads to death. He says it's not just a cause and effect. It's a sowing and reaping. A leads to B, which leads to C, which leads to D. And he just goes all the way down. But then he says, but the contrast, verse 22, he says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life and not just someday when you die. The life God created you to live now. As you become a slave, as you became... Romans 1.1, Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ. If we see ourselves as a servant of Christ, a slave to obedience, we want to follow him. He said what's going to happen is your position and your practice is going to narrow. You're going to become more and more holy, and it will lead to the eternal life you were created to live here and forever. When Henry Cloud wrote a book uh, a few years ago called The Nine Things You Simply Must Do, he had a chapter in there called Play the Movie play the movie. 
And the whole idea, the whole concept was, don't see things as isolated events now. Play the movie out, see where this is gonna lead. It has a predictable outcome. It's not a mystery. You know where this is gonna go. Is that where you wanna end up? Think about it before you make this decision, because that's where it's gonna be. And Paul's saying, play the movie. You are a slave to sin, the regret, the remorse, the pain, the shame, the guilt, the death that comes from that, just play the movie out. You become a slave to God, to righteousness, to obedience, the, the, the life, the holiness of, of who you become, of, of following, keeping step with Christ and the eternal life, just play the movie out. Decide which way you're gonna go on this one. And then he comes to the very end of the book, of the chapter, and it's probably one of the most famous verses in all of Romans chapter, of all of Romans. Chapter six, verse 23, says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he does this double, triple of contrasts. He says, you have wages or you have a gift. Wages you earn, you deserve, you expect. A gift you don't deserve. You don't expect this, you receive it. And what's the source? The wages of sin or the gift of God And where does it result? When you play that movie out, the wages, the earnings of sin, being obedient to sin, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What an amazing, amazing chapter this is. Romans chapter six. So what if we understood this? What if we understood that our position in Christ is as high as it will ever be, the righteousness of Jesus? But our practice has some catching up to do. And for the rest of our life, that's this transformation that's taking place. And as we do that, to reckon, to realize, to declare, man, I'm dead to sin, but I am alive to God. And practically, I'm gonna use the parts of my body as instruments of righteousness. So here's what I want you to do this week. I mean, spend some more time in Romans 6. It's an amazing, amazing chapter. But would you, and you might need to write this down on your notes or on a three by five card or whatever. Every morning when you wake up, and I did this this morning, because I preached it last night, I already heard this. (laughs) Every morning when you wake up, to just say, before you even get out of bed, I want to declare, I want to remind myself, I am dead to sin. It is not the boss over me anymore. But I am alive to God in Jesus Christ. And I want to use the parts of my body as instruments of righteousness. What if we began to live that way? Not because we're afraid of what God's going to do to us, but because we're so grateful for what God has already done for us. See the difference there? What a way to live in the freedom of God's grace. All right, stand as we close in prayer. Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, through your living and active word, that this truth would go so far beyond what my words can do. But by your spirit, by your word, that our hearts and our minds and our lives would be gripped by this truth and we would live in this freedom and a slave to you, a servant to you, which results in eternal life. Praise in your name.
Amen. Amen. Hey, God bless you. Have a great week. Happy Fourth of July. Again, late happy birthday to those of you from the north. Love you all. Good to have you guys here. 150 years. Woohoo. We'll see. If you like prayer, our prayer team will be here in the front. Have a great afternoon. You're out of here. <laughs>